0: Private Lender Podcast, Episode 66. The Private Lender Podcast quote of the day comes to us from Aristotle, who said, First, have a definite, clear, practical idea, a goal, an objective. Second, have the necessary means to achieve your ends, wisdom, money, materials, and methods. Third, adjust all your means to that end.
1: Hey, how's it going? What's going on? Guten tag und greetings from the energy capital of the world, Houston, Texas, and welcome to the Private Lender Podcast. This is the place to be if you're looking for practical tips and advice on becoming a successful private mortgage lender. If you're looking to take control of your own investments and build wealth without banks or Wall Street by utilizing time-tested methods in this ever-changing digital world, then you, my friend, are in the right place. My name is Keith Baker, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number 66. And as this goes live, it's Tax Day 2019 in the USA. I record these ahead of time, so I don't know if the government's going to be open today, the Brexit thing's going to happen, or who knows? Kind of interesting. But I do know one thing, and that the fact that I have 99 first world problems. And I am grateful for every one. My kids don't have flies around their eyes. They don't have big bellies. They got plenty to eat. And I'm grateful for all of that. So let's start from there. And speaking of gratitude, today, I'm very grateful to have the pleasure of speaking with an attorney who happens to specialize in helping investors handle the paperwork and the filings required by the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission. My guest, Amy Wan, has an impressive resume, to say the least. She lives on the leading edge of the financial and legal tech world and was recently named one of the 10 women to watch in legal tech by the ABA Journal. That's the American Bar Association for people like uh, you and me. And I'm honored and grateful to have her on the show. Before I get too far ahead of myself, I need to disclose an embarrassing truth about today's episode. I don't consider myself very smart, but I'm educated, thanks to mom and dad's insistence. I like to tell people, you know, it took me eight years to get an undergraduate degree. I'm no dummy, okay? I got a lot of educating up in this hit noggin of mine. But for 65 previous shows... I had my stuff together, and I always had the appropriate microphone plugged in. Well, here we are at number 66, and compla- complacency has crept up. And it, uh unfortunately, I recorded the entire episode like this, and it sounds like my microphone's 80 or 90 years old, and any minute someone's going to come back from the 1930s, you see, and they're going to want to take their, their crappy equipment and their <laughs> microphones with them. Uh, it sounds pretty bad, so... Rather than redo the interview, Amy sounds great because she's a professional and she um, got the uh, the earbuds and the microphone, everything set up proper. And I didn't. And I'm the host. So that that looks really bad on me. I apologize. But it does remind me of my new slogan that I actually put on a Private Lender Podcast t-shirt recently. The back says, always verify, never trust. And that is, or is it never trust, always verify. You see, now, now I'm doubting myself. This is not good. I'm driving the bus, as they say, in the radio biz that I know nothing about. So nonetheless, never trust, always verify, I think is a perfect segue into an interview with an SEC attorney. So let's go ahead and get down to the brass tacks and let's get to the interview with Amy Wan. Hey, Linder Nation, I've got a special treat for you today. Our guest is Amy Wan, founder and CEO of Bootstrap Legal, and I am excited to have her on the podcast today. Amy, welcome to the Private Lender Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for coming out and being interviewed because this is, you deal in an area of expertise of the law that is is beyond my scope of understanding, number one. But number two, you're bringing it down to where people like me can participate. And I definitely want to get into that part of it. I promise we'll keep this about 30,000 feet as much as possible. And we'll drill down when we need to, because I know the law can get... uh, we can go down some rabbit holes. So first thing is tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became the securities and syndication guru that you are.
0: (laughs) Sure. I actually started my career in federal government, right? And there we were doing interesting things in DC, international trade, international regulatory affairs. When I moved back to LA, There's really not much of international trade law industry out in LA, except for like import, export compliance paperwork, very different from like negotiating free trade agreements. And so I basically started over, I became general counsel of a early stage real estate crowdfunding platform at that time. And the interesting thing about that crowdfunding platform is that I actually had to deal with two different areas of law one on the real estate lending side and then one on the actual security side because what we did was we basically did private lending. We would make hard money, private money loans to folks flipping houses and then we would fractionalize those loans and basically turn it into a security and sell it to accredited investors through our marketplace. So I spent a couple years there, learned the in and outs of both of those different sides of the industry. Then I went on to become a partner at a boutique law firm that basically focused pretty much exclusively on real estate syndication, more so the equity side. And then it got really interesting. I got to a point in my practice where I was spending every day just writing the same fund documents over and over again. And I thought this is really inefficient. And I befriended someone who was just beginning in the syndication industry at the time. He's now a pretty large real estate syndication influencer. But back then he came to me and said, hey, I want to raise $300,000 through syndication. How much will it cost? And I told him, look, I'll tell you the price. And then I know you're not going to use me because the transaction cost just doesn't make sense. And sure enough, I told him the price. He fled the other direction. And I thought, this is really interesting. Folks trying to raise just a small amount of capital have a very limited ability to actually be compliant with securities laws. And the SEC doesn't care about that, right? Like, I had dinner with a couple of folks from the SEC, I want to say like one or two years ago. And I brought this up to them, and they're like, oh, well, you still have to follow follow securities laws anyway. And I'm just like, well, I get that, but there's this practical reality. And so, Given that I had worked at a tech startup, I thought I can do better, right? So I whipped up some software that I basically, it's kind of like the tax of real estate syndication, and it actually automates the first draft of a lot of the paperwork that you need to sell a security. And so for me, it's, as an attorney, it's great because I cut off like 20 hours off of drafting But it's great for my clients because A, I can get them the documents faster. And then my prices tend to be a little bit lower because I'm just so much more efficient, right? So I'm not one of those attorneys who like bills by the hour. I do flat fees and it just makes so much more sense.
1: That's cool. And don't worry, Linda Nation, we're going to go back and cover a lot of these terms that are coming out. But that's cool. Yeah. I heard you, I think it was first on Kevin Buff's podcast a while ago. And I was commuting to work thinking, i got to get Amy on to talk about this because a lot of our listeners will call and ask or they'll email and they'll talk about the security side of things, the SEC and what investors or borrowers would have to do because they're, as I understand it, they issue the certificates or they issue the security. So the SEC is concerned with them. What about so much on the private lending side? What type of rules and regulations do we have? And I'll back it up. Let's look at it from a, I'm going to make a loan on a single family house versus I'm going to get into My best friend is going to get into an apartment complex and he's syndicating 20 people together to get the equity stake so that we can go get the funds. How does the, from a federal perspective, how are the investors and the lenders look?
0: Sure. So when it comes to lending law itself, right, although there are some federal regulations and laws around lending generally, most of those are in the consumer context. And so, really, when it comes to private money, a lot of this is done from a state regulation perspective, right? Now, when you get into state lending laws, honestly, it varies state by state. Some states require you to have a license to do this, some states don't care. Some states, like, for example, California, you can make a small number of loans. And then, after you reach that limit, then you have to have that license there's different types of licenses you need right so it's kind of all over the map generally there are a couple things that folks should keep in mind one of the things is usury rates right so basically a loan that is usurious is when you you're charging too much for interest so every state has a different usury rate you generally do not want to go over it because the states and the regulators do not take kindly upon that. Although I think generally in today's market, that's not so much of a problem because the rates today are significantly lower, I think, than they were just five or six years ago. So usury is one. Another thing I think to keep in mind, and we'll talk about later, is securities, right? So if it's one person lending to another person, that's usually fine. When it's multiple people banning together to lend to one person or even multiple people, then we have to think about a different set of laws. That's securities laws. And the last thing is it depends on what you're lending on, right? So owner-occupied, because if we're talking about single family residentials, right? Lending to owner-occupied is different from lending to non-owner-occupied. When it's non-owner-occupied, Generally, you're lending to some sort of LLC, there's a business entity, there's a business bank account, the person is not supposed to live in it, right? There is uh, language in the actual loan documents that say, this is a business purpose loan, et cetera, et cetera. I won't use any of this for personal or household expenses. Contrast that with when you're lending in the owner-occupied context, suddenly that becomes a consumer loan. It's not a commercial loan. And that is very, very heavily regulated.
1: Yeah, it is. And I do, I've loaned to people who do seller financing and it's Dodd-Frank, lots of hoops we go through. We have it originated and there's the test to make sure that that person can pay the mortgage and you're not gouging them. Because you said it perfectly, once it becomes a consumer loan, then the regulators and the judges are not gonna look favorably upon I don't care if it is out of your uh, Roth IRA. Right. You're doing something uh, wrong and they're going to get you.
0: And not only that, it's not just a whole different set of rules, but it's kind of like a different philosophy or mentality applies, right? Like If you're lending to non-owner occupied, people are like, oh, it's a business loan. It's all for business. Like You're presumed to be sophisticated and all that kind of stuff. When you're doing a consumer loan and you end up going to court or something like that, then suddenly it's not like, oh, I need you a business loan. The deal went south. It is, oh, you're kicking someone out of their home. It's suddenly a much bigger deal. And the states where they tend to be blue states or places where it's a large metropolitan area, the judges in those jurisdictions are going to scrutinize this a lot more in the favor of the borrower than the lender. So, just be aware of all of that.
1: <laughs> and thank you for that. Because I tell people when they, hey, I want to be a private lender, that don't go owner-occupied. Not until you get a lot of experience and you get a hell of a legal team built behind you that can handle all this for you. Because that's obviously what lawyers are there for. They're, help, they're there to keep us compliant. And to also to say, hey, I see you put this language in here. Well, this can happen, right? Or this is your worst case scenario. Or why don't you try this? And it's funny you mentioned usury laws because Quincy Long of Quest IRA always says, you know, what's a little usury amongst friends, right? It's just, you know, we yeah. all know each other here. In the short answer, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand it is, you know, there are no usury police out there. However, in Texas, we're 18% is our usury law, right? So let's say I make a loan for 20% and I anger that borrower somehow, some way. That borrower can go to court, take it to a judge. The judge says, oh, look, this is a usurious contract. It's null and void, and you don't even have to pay that guy back his money,
0: yeah. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I basically liken it to landlord-tenant law where it's like, there's so many places where just because the tenant complains, everyone bends over backward for the tenant as opposed as opposed to the landlord. It, it sucks. It's business. And you just don't really want to be in that situation.
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So security's perspective on the federal level, everyone's got to check your own state and I guess we should, it would be worthwhile saying we're not offering to sell any securities or anything like that. And this does not constitute a attorney kind contract with you or anybody else. (laughs) I'm not an attorney, but it is my podcast. So I figured I better, (laughs) I better say that. (laughs) So from the federal level to lenders, as long as we're making it, like you said, person to person, it's a business loan from, for me to a real estate investor to do a flip, or maybe three years, a landlord wants to hold it for three years or whatever. Very little regulation on that. There may be some check with your state, but from the federal level, the SEC, they're pretty cool with.
0: Well, so the SEC doesn't deal with this a whole lot, except, of course, to the extent that you get multiple investors involved. But right, this tends to be on a very state level and it tends to be a very commercial discussion. Now, the only thing I'll say is the other big issue is licensing, right? Do you need a license to be making these loans, to be brokering them? that's a state-by-state discussion. There, in most states for non-owner-occupied lending, you usually don't need a license. There's a handful of states where you do. And then when it comes to brokering, actually there are several states that offer several different types of licensure, right? So you could just be a regular real estate broker, you can be a mortgage broker, you can be a loan broker, things of that sort. So again, a very state-by-state discussion.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. From a federal, yeah, it's, I do actually kind of like that. You know, the feds are like, we're going to just make sure that you're not taking advantage of anybody and then we'll let everything else fall to the States. So you talked about brokering. I wanted to bring that up because we're Texas. We're pretty, it's funny. You know, we're a red state, but we're pretty liberal when it comes to things like the oil field guns and, uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> and we're awesome. I mean, we have very short foreclosure process.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, Texas is for me, I love uh, being here to lend here, but brokering. And what I'd like to do, if I can just give you a scenario of maybe something I've thought about doing, or maybe it's something I've done, I don't know. Let's say that I find a deal, but I've, I've already tapped out all my money out of my self-directed IRA and I don't have any cash, but I negotiate a loan to an investor and then I have somebody else fund it. Can I just get a couple of points, get the points off of the, the loan at closing, or <laughs> would I be considered a broker in the eyes of the feds?
0: So the feds don't really care. But your state regulators are going to care, right? And so that's one of those situations where you are going to have to figure out whether you need a loan brokering or a mortgage brokering something like that licensed from your specific state.
1: Perfect. All right. We don't have a security in Texas until you get like thirty people. I mean, it's something ridiculous. But (laughs) that leads me to my next question. In let's say, because I really want to get into your expertise here, because I really want to just let you go and, and listen. But Let's say I'm making the step up. I'm going from my single family. I'm an investor now, not just a private lender, but I want to become an active investor. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm not going to go run out and sponsor a syndication for a 200-unit apartment complex. But as someone who is a single-family investor and lender, kind of walk us through. I am going to walk you. Know, a friend of mine is going to sponsor this deal. He's putting it all together. He's getting everything legal. Everything has got his private his memorandums together. You know everything. What kind of walk us through? or walk me through what you would suggest I look for as I go through my first uh, syndication.
0: Sure. So the first thing I'll mention is that notes or basically debt instruments can be considered a security, right? So earlier when I said one person's making a loan to another person, that's not really a security. That's just a straight up loan. Now, when we get into fancier things where it's like, okay, I'm going to get 10 investors to invest in a fund which is going to make a lot of private loans to flippers or something like that suddenly that's a security right so in terms of what isn't is not a security there's a very well-defined test on that it's called the Howie test and af- named after a dude named Howie <laughs> but basically it's a four-part test and what people are really looking for to figure out whether or not you're selling a security is Generally, there's an investment of money. It's a common enterprise of people, right? So not one person to one person, but a group of people. The folks who are, in, who are putting their money in are expecting some sort of profit or possibly a loss. And then lastly, and very importantly, is that it's based off the efforts of another or a third party, right? So what that really means is, If you have all active investors, like if you have some sort of investor club where everyone says, Hey, we're all going to source deals together, and whoever finds a good deal, we might all invest in it. That's not really a security because it's it's more like an educational group, right? But if it's something like, Okay, I'm due diligence seeing all these deals that come in through the pipeline, I've determined that this one is really good. I may be putting some of my money in it, or I don't have to, right? but you guys are all going to invest money and I'm going to organize everything, package it all together, make the loan, and I will do all the investor relations, all of that. To the extent there's foreclosure, you guys don't have to be involved. I will take care of that, right? And then whatever profits come back, I'm going to distribute them to you. So really, instead of an active investor situation, you've got a passive investor situation. So there's one person or a couple people who's ever part of the sponsoring team where they're handling the day-to-day operations and then all the people putting the money in they are passive they don't want to deal with it they are paying you to deal with it right and so you're really looking at situations where it's like the doctor that's investing the dentist who's investing they don't want to be you know active real estate investors themselves they just want to invest money somewhere and then Hopefully, it makes them money, right? So, so that's really when we're talking about securities laws. Now, securities in the private lending context, it comes in a couple of different forms, right? The most popular form I see is hey, someone wants to start some sort of fund that basically makes hard money or private money loans all day long, right? And they don't want to do it with their own money. Instead, they're going to get Big checks from all these different investors. And they're going to invest that money, they're going to manage it, they're going to do all the due diligence and then pay some sort of return on investment to their investors. And that's probably the most popular context where securities law and private lending meet.
1: Gosh, gotcha. he created a fund and going through it and just, yeah, it's been a, quite a process for him to, to do that and started off as, hey, let's put our money together. Now it's, so well, let's go get everyone else's money. Obviously, that is going to be a security, and someone like I said, the pa- the passivity of it. I give you money, you go make it for me, and then you know, give me some of that back. That that's pretty self. How I understand the securities to work in, in a fund. What are the, uh, some of the other ways that besides funds that come together, or, it, or like let's say in a syndication, for example, where uh, in a fund, you know, you're taking. Well, a fund is usually not, I say, deal specific. Whereas a syndication is that's this commercial building or this particular apartment complex. Is there any kind of difference?
0: Right. So there's basically three different categories that I usually talk about, right? So one is what we call single asset syndication. And that is exactly what it sounds like. It is identified one building. I probably have it under contract. And if you are investing in this deal, you're basically investing in the returns made from that property, right? Then there's what I call a blind pool. And that's what you, you're referring to as a fund, which is there's no specific deals per se. So maybe I haven't identified the multifamily apartment that I want to invest in or the group of them, right? Or maybe I'm my plan is I'm going to make all these private money loans, but I don't know exactly what the loans are. So you don't know exactly where the money is going, but you do have a general business plan so you're going to raise money and deploy the capital according to your business plan. And the third is basically right in the middle. It's what we call a semi-specified fund. So that's kind of the situation where maybe you have identified one property, but whoever is investing, they're not just invested in that one property. They're invested in that one property that you've identified plus other ones that are not identified yet, right? So a lot of the times when folks do this, it'll be like, oh... You're investing in to two properties. I have one under contract, but I haven't found the other one yet. So it'll be a situation kind of like that. The only thing I'll say is that when you're really talking about like multifamily syndication or actually taking down entire buildings and not so much the debt side, but the equity side. Investors, when they are underwriting a deal, there are two things that they're gonna look at, right? One is the deal itself. So I'm gonna underwrite the actual property. And then they underwrite the sponsor, right? Because you have to have that relationship of trust. On a single asset syndication, it's possible to underwrite both. On a blind pool, you are only underwriting or due diligence the sponsor and not the actual properties. And so I find that investors who invest in blind pools tend to be different from investors who invest on the single asset syndication side, right? But at the end of the day, all of this basically comes down to trust.
1: Yeah, you're right. And you're, we do business with people we know, like, and trust, right? And that's really, I think you wrapped it all right there. And I love the fact you said you do diligencing on the sponsor or the investor, not the property, because at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, we look at, you know, whether it's a single family home or an apartment or a commercial deal, the people, the process, and then the property for me, as far as I'm going to invest my money with the person, right? And then, as if everything falls in line, the last thing I look at will be the property, but I have these uh, like these little pillars, right? And it's, if somebody hasn't done at least 10 deals, never loan to them. That's what hard money lenders are for. That's why they charge 15% in three points here in Texas, because they're taking on the risk of you not knowing what you're doing. And if they have to come in and you know take over, whereas you know from a private lending perspective, look, I'm lazy. There's a reason why I'm not an active as I used to be or active as I want to be, because I've got other things going on, but I still want to invest. So private lending fits in for me. The last thing I want to do right now is go evict the dentist that didn't uh, pay the rent on the second yeah. floor and have to deal with, our, are we going to switch from, are we going to go to the LED bulbs? Are we going to go with the old fluorescents? All the stuff that I see the guys at the management at my building where I work go through every day, I'm like, yeah, just give me the check at the end of the month. I'm good. Yeah, just give me the cash flow. Back to the whole trust thing. That's the other thing I love about real estate and, and private lending is just that that social, that human element to this all. And this is where I want to get into kind of where your are you're breaking new ground with what you're doing. So, I'm going to kind of turn it over to you and say, okay, I'm no longer a private lender. I am looking to be an active investor. I'm a, I've all of a sudden I have all this knowledge. And I'm going to be a sponsor yeah. and I'm going to go buy a commercial build. How do you help me with all of the securities and everything?
0: Sure. So, you can be the person who's buying the commercial boarding or you can be the person who's starting with like the private money fund, right? But basically, what I generally say is this, like, yes, securities laws is complex, but I also don't think it's that difficult to actually be compliant. Generally, it's just a couple of things, right? So when we talk about how do we comply with securities laws, basically like 99% of private capital in the U.S. is raised under really one exemption, and that is rule 506B as boy. Now there's a whole ton of other federal exemptions. right? There's a ton of state exemptions, but really the vast majority of capital in the US, they really just use one law. So what Rule 5.6B says is you can take as many accredited investors as you want. So accredited investors are basically rich people. You can take up to 35 non-accredited investors. Non-accredited investors are people who aren't nearly quite as rich. Now those non-accredited investors, you have to have a pre-existing relationship with them, so they can't just be like Joe Schmo walking off the street. You just you just met them, mm-hmm. and they have to be sophisticated. And what that means is they have to understand what they're investing in. Right? It can't be Grandma and her last social security check. They have to understand that there is risk of loss. Yada yada. The next thing that you should know is we are limited in how we go out and find these investors. Right. So the general rule of thumb is you cannot advertise or illegally, as we call it, general solicitation. You can't advertise to the world the fact that you're selling this security. You can't go on Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever and say, hey, I'm raising $5 million to lend out in private money loans in three different states. Come invest in my fund. You can't say that. Okay. There are things that you can say, but it has to be very vague and non-specific. The moment that you talk about advertising, you no longer can use rule five, six B. You're suddenly using or should be using one of several other rules that really aren't nearly as popular for various reasons, just because it's not as easy to use. So those are the biggest things. And the last thing I'll just generally say is don't commingle funds. It's never a good thing. Do not treat the business bank account like your personal bank account, because when you're doing that in a regular business, it's already bad. When you're doing it in the securities context, that's fraud, right? So we definitely do not want to do that. Now, in terms of what the process looks like and what paperwork you need. Now, the rule of thumb is if I am taking only accredited investors, so only rich people, I actually don't need the full gamut of documents. Although it's the best practice and even the largest institutional funds, they will go get the full gamut of of documents just because they're very protective, right? But if you take so much as one non-accredited investor, then you need the full gamut of documents. And now it's actually not just a recommendation, SEC requirement. Now, what are those documents? That is what we call a private placement memorandum or a PPM for short. Some people call it an offering memorandum. It's a subscription agreement. Typically, you're going to have some sort of LLC documents. So it'll be the operating agreement or the company agreement, right? And then to the extent that you have foreign investors, you might have some sort of supplemental foreign investor questionnaire. And then after that, there can be a couple other documents, but it's a very case-by-case basis thing. Now, basically the most important document is the one I mentioned first, the PPM. And that is this massive, very difficult to read, sometimes 40 to 100 page document. And what it basically does is it's like legal garbage in one document that talks about every single risk that the investor might possibly encounter. The reason it does this is because you have to disclose everything in securities laws and if Investor comes back and says, "Oh, you didn't disclose this." Then, too bad. Like they have, they have grounds to sue you, right? And so that's why these documents are so obscenely long. Now, what does the process look like? So, typically, what happens is, so I'll tell you my process, right? Typically, I'll, I'll do a, a quick consultation just to qualify the potential client and make sure that I actually am in the business of doing what they want me to do. I get leads all the time of people who want me to do other things. And I'm just generally not so interested in that. So first we qualify the client. And then if there's someone that I can serve, then I will basically send them an engagement letter to digitally sign. And then my process is that I send them basically an an online questionnaire. It's like TurboTax, for real estate securities, right? And the whole reason I do this is because I use a bit of technology to cut down the number of hours that I have to spend as an attorney drafting these documents. So the client basically goes in, they fill out the questionnaire to the best of their ability, and then we have a follow-up appointment. And the reason for this is, I think TurboTax even does this now, but bad input is bad output. And a lot of times people don't, don't necessarily know, right? So I always want to make sure that I go through the entire questionnaire with the client. I help them fill out anything that they skipped over. Um, I answer questions in case they didn't know how to answer a question or didn't know what to decide. And then I will ask for a couple of documents, LLC, entity formation papers, if they already have them. If not, that's fine. We just form a client. And then I try to turn around all those documents in three business days. That's for a pretty vanilla deal. If it's a little bit more complex, then it might take a little bit longer. And then it's just the regular back and forth attorney client process where the client reads it, they provide comments, feedback, they ask for changes, and we go through however many drafts we need to go through before they're finalized. I finalize them, I deliver them to the client. And then this entire time the client has gone out to talk to investors, right? They haven't collected any checks yet because no documents have been signed, but they've been queuing up the investors and getting them ready. They may have presented a deck with the investor already, right? Maybe they have verbal commitments. Now they move on to the stage of, hey, the legal docs are ready. Please sign the legal documents. Send me the funds. Once the sponsor is done raising the money, then they have to come back to me or whoever the attorney is. And for me, they fill out a spreadsheet that, tells me how many investors they got from different states, how much they sold in that state, small details like that, because then I have to go and do two different types of filing. One is a federal filing. I file something with the SEC and that's called a Form D. It's a free filing. No one has to pay anything for it. And then I have to do a state filing in each state from which they have taken an investor, right?
1: From every state where the lender is, they got you got to file in each state.
0: Not necessarily the lender, the investor, right? Okay. So if they got a hundred investors from California, I file once. But if they got one investor from California, I still have to file once. Now, the filing is not a big deal. Honestly, the only reason we have to do it is because this is a way that the states make money, right? It brings in <laughs> revenue for them.
1: You say the government is a profit center. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so here's the thing. If you use a state exemption. For your securities offering, then you're only allowed to sell the security in that state and the state has authority. But under the rule that I mentioned earlier, Mm 506B, that rule has what we call a federal exemption. That means the federal government basically takes precedent here and the states really aren't allowed to do much. So it's almost like in exchange for giving up all that power and authority to regulate, they're like, well, at least pay me a, a fee. Right, and the states do do have a little power, but really you're just dealing with the SEC at this point now, the state filings we call them blue sky notice filings it's not a whole lot of money. some states it might be thirty dollars a hundred dollars. There are a couple states where it's a little bit more Texas has a a sliding scale, and the maximum that you pay is five hundred dollars so it's not terrible. But you can certainly minimize it to the extent that most of your investors are coming from one or a couple states, right? If you go and get one investor in ten different states, that's eh, a little bit less efficient. So that is it in a nutshell. I promise the entire process sounds a lot more complicated than it really is. The client usually is not involved very much with the federal and the state filing processes at all. They really don't have to do much for it. It's really just the upfront paperwork that we want to make sure is right. And then everything else, I help them do that.
1: So once it's up and running, you've got all the paperwork in, everything's filed, everything's disclosed, everything's signed. Are you pretty much out of the game at that point? Is your work done or is there anything where you would get drugged back in, I guess?
0: Usually I am, but afterwards, sometimes clients do come back to me with certain questions And so I charge a flat fee and I say it's for the lifetime of the deal, right? So the other day I had a client come back and say, hey, like I had a question about the distribution structure. Are we supposed to do it this way or this way? But generally, there aren't too many questions after we finish that entire process. After that is when I would say that the CPA, bookkeeper, whoever is doing your accounting, your taxes becomes much more important because they're the ones who help you on the distributions, the tax withholdings, the K-1s, if you have to give them to investors, stuff like that, right? And that's the stuff I don't do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Another thing I wanted to go back to you, I wish I would have written it down, but you're you talking about the, uh, the PPM and the, the legal mumble jumbo. That's <laughs> from an attorney, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's not from me. So, So you do this across any state then, right? All states, you'll file on behalf in all 50 states?
0: Right. So I am a federal securities attorney. So if someone's coming to me to do an offering under state exemption, I do not do that. I will say go find an attorney in your state. But if they are coming to me and they want to do a securities offering under a federal exemption, then I can do it. and that's across all 50 states, correct?
1: That's interesting. You also through my social stalking of you, you do crypto as well. You're yes. in the crypto space which I'm not, but I wanted to mention that to the audience because you have your own podcast on cryptocurrency. You want to go ahead and plug it?
0: Yeah. So it's called the Law and Blockchain Podcast. I would like to say it's more about blockchain than crypto, right? Okay. Well,
1: blockchain, yeah.
0: Very distinct thing, right? But it's very interesting. In 2017, there was this crazy industry that exploded called ICOs, Initial Coin Offerings. And I had all these people calling me up and being like, hey, I want to sell an ICO. And I did not take any of those clients because I was like, that's a securities offering. They thought they had invented a new way of raising money that was completely unregulated. That was certainly not the case as the SEC has come out in full force now and quelled that notion. More capital was raised in 2017, 2018 in ICOs than venture capital. So it's crazy. But there's a lot of Weird novel intersections between law and legal theory and blockchain, and so I basically I have a podcast that explores all of that. It's fun.
1: <laughs> I'm definitely getting it. To, I've slowly I've gotten a few coins and the sign. Give me your email, I'll give you ten coins. I'm like, yeah, this these are going to be worth nothing and then, <laughs> Yeah, I'm not putting any money into it because I take the. I guess it's like more like the Gary V approach. But I'm not going to talk about it unless I can, unless I have some experience and, and I feel confident. So.
0: It's honestly better not to talk about it because everyone in this space is getting SIM hacked right now. They they suddenly like look at their phone one day and it's out of service. And it's because someone's gone to Verizon or AT&T and imported their phone number onto a different phone. And so they suddenly get access to that person's, they reverse hack and they get access to like emails and social media and people's crypto exchanges. And so many people have just been wiped out of massive fortunes from sim hacking it's crazy
1: that's a topic i didn't even know we'd get to but i'm glad we did <laughs> that is yeah that's nuts and i mean the, the blockchain I, at some point i do want to maybe i'll have you come on and, and come in and talk about blockchain and, and what it is its most basic form because i've read the uh, the white paper that came out for, for the bitcoin whenever it was and look i consider myself a smart guy i, I, I made it through college by hook or crook i got out of college but Yeah, I still need a need a little more time to wrap my head around. Basically, this computer and that computer are going to validate this transaction. I bought a house. I want to take it to the county clerk. I want it filed. I want it on microfiche. Sound like my dad, but you know, so twentieth century. But that is something. Yeah, I'd love to explore later on because I even this, this this is going to sound funny. Even though I don't understand it, I have a feeling it is going to revolutionize the way we do real estate and other things. I mean, I understand Cook County, Illinois is already using it at their county clerk level. So. It's here. The iron horse is here to uh, make everything better for us, uh, so to speak. So we'll see what well, happens.
0: Well, here's the nice thing is if, you know, real estate title and liens were put on blockchain, then we wouldn't have issues around, or at least as many issues around fraud around titles or people going and getting second liens when they're actually prohibited to right? stuff like that. So
1: all right. Okay. Yeah. I want to definitely interview on that <laughs> and have you back on another episode. I just want to circle back now that I've completely run. I told you we're going to keep it at 30,000 feet now. Here we go. Blockchain, here's that rabbit hole. I'm, I
0: know, right?
1: <laughs> I'm running right down it. So, okay. You've talked about the 506 and the Bs and the Cs. And you, you know, as long as you know the people, you're not advertising, they're accredited. Here's, this is one question I had from a lending perspective. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand the investor has to be compliant with the securities law. Is there a way as a private lender or someone who's participating in a syndication, is there something that I can, outside of the document, the subscription agreement and the PPM, or if you have any of those documents that you mentioned earlier, is there anything else as a lender I can make sure my sponsor is keep doing everything above board?
0: Well, hopefully they actually have an attorney as opposed to downloading something online and trying to edit it themselves, which I think is a pretty bad idea. PPMs because PPMs can be structured in all different sorts of ways. So you want to make sure they're doing this proper way and not just like making it up.
1: Checking with the attorney and maybe speaking with him or her. Yes, I'm a real person. I'm helping them with their securities.
0: Well, I mean, like I don't really talk to the investors of my clients, but people will ask my client, Oh, who's your attorney on this deal? Right.
1: I'm sorry. Does your name show up on the PPM? Like it's prepared by your firm or anything?
0: No, it does not. And it doesn't really need to. I think for your average layperson, if they see a PPM, they probably wouldn't be able to tell whether it was drafted by an attorney or not. But I mean, usually it's good enough to just say like, hey, like, who's your attorney on this deal? And then like, oh, send me their LinkedIn profile or something and just make sure it's a real person.
1: Hey, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with a little cyber stalking, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, a little usury amongst friends. It's fine, you know. It's due diligence and verification. And there's a famous quote: "Don't trust, always verify." <laughs> just don't even take anybody's word for it. This has been, I think, you've answered. what well, you provided about twenty more questions that I'm not going to ask you right now. How can people get a hold of you if I, I want to put it together a syndication and need some help on from a federal level? How can we get hold of Amy?
0: Yeah, fantastic. So I'm on all the different social media channels. LinkedIn is a good way to follow me. The website is bootstraplegal.com. I'm also on BiggerPockets. I'm on Twitter at AmyY1, W-A-N. And yes, and I lurk in a lot of different groups on Facebook, Telegram, and all these different social media channels. So I'm sure people will find me one way or another.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, I, yeah, go, go to bootstraplegal.com. And or LinkedIn to your uh, profile because it's um it has been an honor to have you on today. Thank you so much for keeping it simple to where at least I can understand things. That's not always easy. So uh,
0: yeah, of course, happy to be here. <laughs>
1: awesome. one thing I sadly one thing we spoke about in the in the pre interview is to all my private lenders out there, my single family people, uh, do not contact Amy to write your promissory note or your trust. <laughs> Leave that to your local state attorney. But anything securities, by all means, please do reach out to Amy, show her some love and give her some business. So because this is like you're like having Mitch Stephen and Ron Legrand. This is like
0: huge. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank
1: you so much. And I look forward to talking to you about blockchain in the future.
0: Awesome. Will do.
1: Thanks. Take care. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank Amy Wan for coming on the show today, sharing her time, her thoughts and her wisdom. And if you'd like more information about Amy, please go to the show notes page at and There you can connect with Amy and learn more about how she is helping drastically change the real estate investing landscape. She's been on my watch list since uh, before I even started recording the show when it was just an idea. I heard her on a podcast and wanted to get her on. So having her on today is another huge deal, another big day for your not-so-humble narrator and host. And I'd also like to thank a gentleman by the name of Bill in Tennessee who reached out some time ago and suggested I do an interview with an SEC attorney. That is what set me on the path to finally interviewing Amy. So thank you, Amy, and thank you to Bill in Tennessee for making this episode possible. This podcast is completely free of charge to listen to every week, but I do ask that you pay a price, and that price is this. If you find any value in this episode, please tell someone, share this with them, help spread the word. So uh, others like you and me can find this show and can listen and learn from uh, my mistakes, uh, which is really what this is I'm trying to, to impart. So connecting in with others and then letting them know about the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could do that solid for me. And last week I started something or I did something. I don't know if I started it, but I gave a shout out and a, a podcast suggestion for the listener to listen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I suggested you listen to Andy Frasella and his MFCEO project, and I hope that you checked it out and found something of value from it. I hope I don't lose anybody. Doesn't hold back. Cusses like he's from the oil field or he's a sailor. And that's kind of the, um, the in vogue, you know, I say it's in vogue. It's like a bad thing, but it's more acceptable these days. So I try not to cuss on my podcast, although I do from time to time and he doesn't have that filter. He doesn't care. Uh, and that's just part of his charm and part of the value there for me. Anyway, next week I plan to, I think I'm going to suggest another podcast for your listening pleasure. I thought about it. I'd like to give you guys a little teaser, but I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to build it up too much. So all I'm going to say about next week's suggestion is that I have a lot of time. I mean, I have a lot of time for the host of next week's podcast suggestion. I'm not going to lie. It's a bit of a curveball, kind of like Andy, another curveball. So I'm coming right at you throwing junk. Coach says, I'm too young. I'm going to mess up my elbow, but you know what? I'm going to throw you the ball. I'm going to throw you the curve boss. We're 66 episodes in. I think I should be able to, um, uh, take down some of my barriers, show a little vulnerability, but also the, start throwing some heat and some some curveballs at you. Yeah, I might lose a few listeners. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, episode one, this is a big experiment. We'll see where it takes me. And us. So anyway, I'm about to sign it off here. Sign it off. Yeah, I'm about to sign it off. Uh, <laughs> but you can connect with me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn and Bigger Pockets. And links to all those channels can be found at privatelenderpodcast.com. And thank you, listener, for listening today. Thank you for your time and your consideration. And please keep reaching out to me. I'm very slow on re- responding to emails, but I really do appreciate all the feedback that I receive. And it means more than I, than any words I can put into this microphone. So that's it for episode number 66. And this week, besides good health and happiness and uh, self-awareness, I wish you all safe and prosperous. Private London. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review and we'll catch you next time.